0: one and we're live you're tuning into cosmic children i'm your host kevin and today i have a fairly interesting person in the studio with me so the instagram algorithm introduced me to this individual gwen so gwen for those who might not know who you are or what you do could you please introduce yourself
1: yeah, hi, I'm Gwen. I'm actually in the gaming industry right now. And actually, my roots started out from game audio and mm-hmm. I still run my game audio studio in Bar Interactive. So it's about eight years old. I'm the creative director there. And um, I'm also a sound designer and a technical sound designer. And uh, my voluntary experience would be running Singapore Games Association as the chairperson. Um yeah, it's uh, pretty big shoes to fill, but uh, I'm trying my best.
0: Interesting. Okay, so let's start with <laughs> Singapore Games Association. I have, so the thing that has always been bugging me so far is like mm. uh, with regionally, and let's say we, we take a look at South Korea, there's been a lot of emphasis on esports and gaming. So mm. when the, the sponsored post came up with regards to this Singapore Gaming Association, it kind of perked my interest because I was thinking, finally, it's about time. So could mm. you elaborate on what? particular association is and what is the vision what is the purpose of it
1: okay so here comes the official blurb yeah (laughs) (laughs) so we are the primary trade association for gaming in singapore and we are supported by three government agencies enterprise singapore imd and singapore tourism board so the mission of it is to really build a sustainable ecosystem for gaming and also to promote singapore gaming to the international audience so i think like this is um I think safe to say that being a trade association, we focus mostly on companies and building ecosystems. Yep. And it's pretty serious stuff because it's like trade and everything. Okay. But deep down in my heart, I mean, it's still with community. Mm. The roots of SGGA even though it's very new and it just only got formalized like in August last year, right? The roots of it stem from Singapore Games Guild, which is really Mm -hmm. like a community run. Um, We focus on events, you know, just bringing the community together. So yeah, that's what I mean by like, it's pretty big shoes to fill. Because I thought myself, I think of myself as somebody as part of the community and not so much as like chairperson (laughs) of like a trade association where I have to, you know, work with embassies and government agencies to like talk about um how to promote trade across yeah. like different countries.
0: Yeah. So these two words, trade association and ecosystems are really sexy right now, especially ecosystem. Everybody wants mm-hmm. an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So when conceptualizing this idea of Singapore Games Association, let's take it out of the official blog. How do you conceive of uh, bringing, I guess, is it the idea of a uh, homegrown games or mm-hmm. what is it that they are trying to bring across?
1: I think for a trade association, yes, it's important to have homegrown games, but I also think it's just important to add to the economy overall. Even if the games are not homegrown, right? Like let's say the services come from Singapore, right? Serving games that are probably from other countries, right? That's also adding back to the economy. So when we think about ecosystem, right? And it's really important to to say this because like, the traditional path career path of a game developer in Singapore is often in three main pillars, right? Mm. Game design, game art, games programming. So yeah. like, there's many great schools that do that. Uh, DigiPen, you know, Nanyang Poly, uh, Singapore Poly, etc. But uh, it's important to know that there are so many other roles outside from these three pillars. So for myself, for example, I do audio, yep. right? So <laughs> yeah, I think not a lot of people here do audio specifically for games, and I can say the same thing for like let's say legal or HR, mm. or like uh, QA, yep. right? Um, Even like journalism, games journalism, you know? So like when, when I say ecosystem, like I really mean the entire uh ecosystem of it, like the parallel industries, the peripheral industries, everything, yeah.
0: So you, you mentioned about your history with regards to, uh, was it a game skill and doing a lot of like, I, 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 I would imagine grassroots grassroot, uh, mm-hmm. type of community building. Mm-hmm. How was like pitching to to... I guess the 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 civil service with regards to start something like this because uh, I would imagine pitching to them something without. Do you need to have a lot of like uh, Google Sheets? Do you need to have a lot of like numbers to them? What 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 mm. were they looking for, mm. or what did you bring to the table that convinced them to to actually start this?
1: I think first and foremost we had a track record. So even though Singapore Games Guild was community run, right, but community still forms a very huge part of the ecosystem. And I had this mentor, Gerald Talk, right? Who's very, um he was really helpful in my career. And the thing that struck me most when he told me when I first got started this community stuff is like, don't go from top down, go from bottom up. What does I mean, that mean? Yeah. Build from the community first, try to gain, win the hearts and minds of the community first and get them to see the value of you. Don't like, like create this like whole big, organization and then just like (laughs) tell people to like oh listen to what we say kind Mm. of thing so i think it's quite important to first talk to the community and and i think that was a major part of also why the government like um supported us because we already have this base right so now all we need to do is present something that's not that's a little bit more advanced and more towards the economy and trade rather than just the community yeah. So, um, I think during the pitching session, there were like three or four other organizations pitching, mm. right? To get the government backing. And we got it because, um, because of the history of SGG. And secondly, because, um, our ex-goal was really experienced. So, um, my vice chairperson, Alicia, right? I'm not sure if you heard of GameStart.
0: GameStar Asia? Yeah, I have yeah. heard of it, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, Alicia runs Elephant, which organised GameStar. Mm. So, that itself is like a huge deal, you know. um, Elephant is like a household name among the gaming community here like, and GameStar as well. So, that one brought in very good, um, very good star power in that yep. sense. And she's also an amazing person, right? She's like, like, Elephant itself. I mean, to organise Singapore's biggest B2C conference, is just like, you know, such a huge undertaking, yeah. right? Yeah, and and they run as a startup as well, so mm. like, you know, like, there's a lot of, support from there and then furthermore like we have other EXCO members like uh Jay who runs RSG which is one of Singapore's top esports teams mm. you know and um, we have people from Facebook you know we have people from Ubisoft as well so I think the the committee itself you can tell that we are from the industry yeah. we're not just like random business people <laughs> coming together to mm. like jump on the esports hype you know because like you said esports is such a big buzzword right and everybody with tons of cash are just yeah. coming in and throwing cash at it yep. without really understanding Understanding what it's about. So uh, for us, right, because and also because our game starts experience and stuff like that, dealing and organizing with esports tournaments, right? We know the industry around it, that it um, extends beyond just players and teams. Yep. Like, you know, it includes production, crew, events management, hospitality. So this is the kind of industry that we are uh, mostly focusing on in the association.
0: So it's interesting because I would never associated the word trade trade association with mm-hmm. gamers before. So mm. is this the the gap I guess in in common knowledge that you're trying to bridge with let's say I'm an average competitive gamer. Is this mm-hmm. the kind of knowledge you're trying to teach them with the with the association?
1: Um yes and no. So if you are a hobbyist and it's never crossed your mind to join the industry, I mean the most we can do is plant the seed in your mind, yep. but we cannot really like, you know, say that it's like a I mean it is still ultimately a passion Driven industry, right? The same way my own day job, like game audio, it's like nobody goes in there to say, I want to make money right? and get rich, <laughs> get rich from it. Like games development, you know, yeah. like we are all like really poor people. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really funny because a lot of the countries out there, you know, especially when we, we have, um, trade panels with like Southeast Asian countries, right? And they say, Oh, yeah, Singapore is so rich. And then I look at them, I'm like, the game developers are not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are really quite poor. So, like, um, yeah, I think the, as an average gamer, um, yeah, we just plant the seed in your mind or then if you want, then you go. But I think it's more of like people who have already um, thought about having careers in like, let's say, events management or like, Mm -hmm. um, product, like film, even film, like, like, I don't think a lot of filmmakers think about, um, contributing to the esports sector.
0: I don't think so. production crew. Most
1: of them want to make their own dream film or they want to enter the advertising industry and stuff like that, production crew, but they don't really think about like, oh, you know, maybe like, um, especially COVID seeing as to how, um, popular streaming is and how hybrid events are, you know, how can film crew be integrated into the esports community? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, we're both from Singapore Mm. and, Hypothetically speaking, do you think the the presence of an association like this with the backing of the government and I guess with the combination of it being grassroots-led, do you think this would move the needle with regards to the conversation of how perhaps a decade or two decades ago there's always a bit of stigma with regards to gaming, mm. if you would even have the idea of wanting to, to do it competitively? I mean uh, the, 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 the pragmatism in the Singaporean culture kind of shows. So mm-hmm. do you think this would help, let's say a 16 year old? Because mm-hmm. with the advent of streaming of Twitch or YouTube gaming, there is a, 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 big push, like, especially in the, in, in, in the Western hemisphere with regards to, oh, this is a viable career. So mm-hmm. do you think with the presence of SGGA that, that there is a possibility of, I guess, having a different type of conversation, really, with regards to it? Hopefully. Hopefully.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something we've been struggling with. Like I said, our association is quite new. And like recently, you know, Genshin Impact, right? Super popular game. The moment it came out, you know, there were billboards and like advertisements, all over Next. They were playing the music. It was amazing. And <laughs> I'm a huge fan as well. And then next thing you know, right? The Straits Times, they just published articles. Oh, uh, gaming equals gambling. Mm. Gacha, loot boxes, you know, yep. the dangers of like yep. children picking up gambling. And it's just like... You know, it's just like, how come y'all never go after people that play mahjong? Mahjong also can mm. a lot of people and dead because of mahjong. Ah. Y'all yep, never yep. go after them. Then y'all want to go after the game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, so like that kind of bad press is really detrimental. I, I mean, like a huge part of the people entering the industry, right? Face it or not, we are still like quite like, paternalistic governance, paternalistic childhood growing up. So yep. like, we'll always listen to parents, what they say and stuff. So like, when parents see this kind of press, they'll be like, yee, gaming, you know, you're yeah, contributing to like, gambling and stuff like that. Or even like, the whole thing about gaming addiction, this is really bad. Because like, if you're a bookworm, and you do nothing but read books, nobody's going to say that, oh, you're addicted to books. <laughs> That's or like a dual, duality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you're, like, you're a film buff, you know, yep. and you watch Netflix, nobody's going to say, oh, you're addicted to film, you know. But for games, somehow it's like, just a bad rap lah. Mm. Yeah. So, and so there's two parts to it. One is the advocacy of it, that like games is also a storytelling medium that is a, uh, Perfectly capable of being an art form. It can tell stories. It can help relieve stress, you know, even beyond entertainment. Mm. Um, it can help to change lives, you know, the same way film has documentaries. One day, and I'm sure it's already happening. Um, games are capable of, uh, teaching you things about society and about reflecting about your own life. Uh. Yep. On the second hand, from a trade associ- association perspective, right? Once we show the numbers, the parents will be like, Oh, can make money, man. <laughs>
0: Uh, Wait, really? go for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, my own parents, like they, I think up to now, they still don't don't really know what I do, but mm. they are okay with it because I have made money from it. Okay, like, At least I'm not starving. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, at first they were quite apprehensive, you know, they were like, oh, what is this thing? And then, so my mom, when I did my first startup, right, um, my game audio studio, my mom was like, okay, i give you like six more months. Uh, if you're still not making money, uh, then you go and-
0: So you have to show the balance sheet. Uh?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's that whole financial literacy. Yeah, and it really helps if um you have some kind of um startup knowledge and 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 stuff because then you can pitch to your parents and show them how games is monetizable. You can even show them like um esports is one of like the hottest thing That's going on now is, is raking in even more revenue than film. It's like, ridiculous. Right, right. So, like, you know, with all these things, then pitch to your parents. Ah. Practice the pitching with your parents, yeah. right? Yeah. So, hopefully, la, with their awareness, things will change.
0: Interesting. So, I guess your audience really is across the board. La. It's not just like the youth, it's not just like the teenagers, but really the parents as well to give them like mm. uh, some knowledge as to the industry because they might not know what they're looking at after all. Correct, correct. Interesting. So, with regards to the startup that you have, which is mm. a company, right? Now, Could you speak a little bit on why specifically game audio? Mm. Yeah, why I, not mm. any other aspects of gaming? Because before, before I did my research for this podcast, it had, for some reason, it has never occurred to me that there would be a dedicated studio with regards to sound. Mm. I always thought it was like uh, perhaps a small team in in, in, a, in a bigger studio and they, they, they do everything. But sound design studios in Singapore is a really... Mm. I can count with uh, one hand how many yeah, really post, good ones there
1: Post-sound, yeah. Yes,
0: but with regards to a very niche, like game design sound, game game sound design, yeah. that, that is <laughs> it's a stretch here. Yeah. <laughs> so why, yeah?
1: I mean, okay, to be honest, it's really niche in Singapore or in Asia, but actually everywhere else is a uh, really popular, a mm. uh, saturated market. So the, the thing is that uh, what got me into it was that first and foremost, I was a gamer since young. You know, I've always played games from young, different kinds of games. And, um, I fell in love with game music, right? Mm. So music is a very, I mean, everybody loves music, right? It's very direct. You know, you listen to it, you feel good. It's a very primal experience. And uh, I think down the line, I developed other hobbies and one of it was like tra- electronic dance music. Gotcha. So like when I was like in like secondary school, I don't know whether you heard of this. Well, you probably have lah. Same I- ish, right? Same generation. Okay, WKRZ
0: 91.3. I've heard of the 91.3. Yeah. Not the WKRZ. Well, what is that?
1: Okay, so WKRZ 91.3, oh my God. That's is, a
0: mouthful, yeah.
1: Yeah, It's uh, it specialized, the genre it specialized in was Eurodance.
0: So, Groove Armada? Uh, yeah, like that?
1: Groove Armada, Groove Coverage.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. Like. I'm going to do some deep YouTubing, Googling after this, yeah.
1: yeah. ATB, you know, like. Like Eurodance are uh, like, okay, the, the the cheesiest, cheesiest form of course, your aqua, you know, your. What? <laughs> I don't know.
0: Do, those other. are considered Eurodance.
1: Um. Some of them are okay. Yeah, so like basically your karaoke staples, like, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the WKRZ play a ton of those, and then once in a while they drop in really nice um, Eurodance track that kind of blend the genres together with trance. Okay. So when I listened to trance, I fell in love with trance, and from there, and this was like secondary school all level times, and then after that, the internet with my fifty six k. Yeah, Modem, la, la. <laughs> Then you started to explore more of the history of dance music. So like from trance, and then oh look, there's a genre called house. Mm. Oh look, there's a genre called techno. You yeah. know, break beats, etc. Electro house and stuff like that. Then that started my journey into a club culture, like rave mm. culture.
0: Rave culture was, was was it prevalent in Singapore
1: back then? Not really. You have to go overseas lah. But like I mean, Zook I was a zoo regular last time. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we go to zoo and then like and then. Just go there and enjoy myself every weekend and um naturally uh I decided to try my hand at music production.
0: Naturally. That that is naturally. <laughs> I, mean,
1: I mean because like like to me like clubbing is a very spiritual experience. Mm. It's like kinda like going to church, you know. Like you go gotcha. there and then you kinda like lose yourself and then the DJ is like It's the
0: podium. <laughs> yeah, it's the <laughs> podium, nah, like
1: the DJ. And then yeah. like like the music feels so good and then you start questioning yourself, why does the music feel good? You know, and then you start Thinking about how how do producers produce this music, so um that was the music part. There was like doing really shitty music using this like sh- program called Fruity Loops. Oh yeah, that's the OG
0: one. <laughs> yeah, OG
1: Fruity Loops, then Reason and stuff like that. So I started doing music as a hobby lah. Then um and then an opportunity came by. The opportunity that time I didn't even think about game audio as a career yet. Mm. I just thought okay, I love playing games. I love making music. I never thought of pursue as a career. In fact, I wanted to be an animator, which oh. was, like completely different.
0: <laughs> Thank God you didn't go down that path.
1: <laughs> I mean, even if I went down that path, it'd still be okay. But at that point of the time, uh when I was in Poly, I was doing research on the industry. And that time I think um the animation industry, the 2D animation industry was kinda going Yep. Yeah. Downhill. Was
0: this like early 2000s or
1: 2000, like 2000, let me think, nearly 2010 Okay. Area. Yeah. Last time a lot of great, uh, 2D animation studios are like Scrawl and Big mm. Story and all that. So, but I was going downhill. So, um, I didn't know what to do. And then there was this opportunity that was, um, to go on a two month incubation program in Boston. Mm. So it was a joint initiative between MIT in Boston and MDA at that time. Mm. And so MDA, the part where MDA came in is they, they would pick students from these schools and send them over to Boston, MIT to do this two-month incubation program. So it was like a sort of cultural exchange slash incubation where like um, the research goals came from MIT Mm-hmm. And then we had to make games based on their research goals yep. in two months. So it's like super fun. And then I just decided to oh just throw in my portfolio. <laughs> At the time I threw in my animation portfolio and then I threw in my random music stuff. Yeah. And I think it was more of like a right time and right place. Like I won't say like my music was awesome. It was like pretty shitty. Okay. But um that time there weren't a lot of um game composers in Singapore. Mm. so they were like oh somebody interested in this game compose music and then just throw me in there alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was whisked off in Boston for like two months uh. that's where the seed was planted in my mind that hey I can pursue this as a career because I realised that how collaborative game game development really is la. so it's like um really every morning scrum you know you get together then you meet up with the artists the designers programmers and then you talk about how okay how audio can enhance this part of gameplay and it, and it starts from the the start like pre-production which was new to me because um traditionally and I think a lot of people from post sound houses were there that oh you know for film um, sound comes in later yep. after picture lock or something. Yep. And I felt that that's really like mad scramble because by the time, maybe you only have two days to do post sound. <laughs> then you're just like, Ugh. you know how the pipeline goes, right? Yep. And then like, sometimes the director is like, oh uh, yeah, this is the final cut. Lies. Then <laughs> 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 like final, then the file name is like, final, 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 version <laughs> one, two, three. Yeah. yeah. So it was interesting to me that sound was involved from the start for games. And and this is um, a philosophy that I continuously promote against in industry as well. So I think, um, yeah, the incubation really planted that seed in my mind. Ah, that's how I started. Loh.
0: so on hindsight, I'm curious to know what what was appealing about the type of music that you were exposed to. Let's say you you mentioned trend, you mentioned like mm. uh, Euro Euro dance and mm. those those what 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 was appealing about those types of music?
1: Hmm. I think wow, that's a really good question. I mean seeing as to how like primal it makes me feel yeah so I a uh, disclaimer is that my taste of music has evolved over time. So last time I really liked Eurodance and trance and now I'm really into techno and house. Hmm. and what's the difference? Oh wow.
0: <laughs> no, I'm generally curious because I'm I'm not privy to those kind of music. Uh-huh. I'm open uh-huh. to it, but I, I really can't tell the difference between them.
1: Okay so uh for trance right the main thing is the chords and the melodies and the instrument that is used so typically um EDM is mostly like between like um well the the f- the ones you hear in clubs are typically between 120 bpm to 140 bpm right yep. it's pretty fast to get yep. you dancing and then like there's always four four on the floor like four kick drums right unless it's breakbeat yep. then um for trance they often use this Synth called the sawtooth synth is a particular sound from mm. a synthesizer that that is very fat <laughs> and covers a wide spectrum of frequencies. And when it plays the correct chords, it just feels good. And it just uses a lot of filters, a lot of expanding, a lot of contracting. And and the thing is like like for for to me EDM is like the the sweet balance between like a repetition because like in. I guess historically in tribes and stuff like that people mm. use repetition and rhythms and percussion to really get you in the mood and yeah. the groove and to get into a trance state versus a um, melody mm. so the the melody just needs to be enough to to complement the beats but not too much to really take you out from it mm. yeah so uh trance was very melodic and then um house is a bit more um less melodic it still has melodies but it uses more organic instruments like voice or like a bass line or something, um, it feels generally softer. Techno is just full on. It's banging. It's like... Banging. Like, um, it's dark. Yeah. If trance was considered happy EDM, I would say techno is like dark EDM. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and techno doesn't have too much melody. Once in a while, there'll be like... After like maybe eight bars, there'll be one note that plays and everybody loses their minds.
0: <laughs> That's techno. <I> can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Do Do you imagine them as different when when you perceive all these different genres and labels? Yeah. Um. Do you perceive them as different? Like if I'm feeling a certain way, if I want a certain, if I want to experience a certain something, you listen to this, or do you, do they all jumble up for you?
1: Mm, I think it depends on my mood. Mm. Yeah. I think it depends on my mood. But honestly, I think um. Sometimes I feel like the the overemphasis of the difference of genres kind of uh, prevents creativity sometimes. Yeah, so I think as I as I grew older, I also started to appreciate uh, when people start to mix genres mm. in a creative manner that still flows, then that's really, yeah, that hits the sweet spot. Uh. So for example, like um when, when I'm working, I want something driving, then I'll listen to techno. Driving? Like driving, how do I say? It? Like just, <sighs> it's like, like give, keeps you in the groove, uh. Yeah, keeps you focused? Working. Yeah, keeps me focused. Okay, okay. Yeah, keeps me focused. Because okay. techno doesn't need a lot of brain power to appreciate. <laughs> you know, it's beats, it's beats, and then like dark the, and oh, the mood. Okay, yeah, okay. very shook. Then sometimes like, but like, trance sometimes got vocal, sometimes got melody, then it's like, it takes you away from like, mm. yeah, concentrating. But other different people work differently. Like I know some friends that work really well trance. So it's just different. Like if you, if you ask me to listen to like IDM.
0: like IDM?
1: Okay, it's, it's really pretentious. IDM stands for Intelligent Dance Music.
0: Is is, is that a thing?
1: Yeah, it's uh, under the EDM electronic genre.
0: But what do they do? They put Alan Watts over the, the beat or something or what is it?
1: <laughs> the, okay, so I was well, it's really hard to define. So IDM typically is is like it it it. it defies the conventions of like sometimes fall on the floor defies the convention of like the BPM between 120, 140. It sometimes even defies the convention of time signature. So Fair you enough. can have something at 7.4, 5.4, no, yep. this kind of thing. Yep. But it's still electronic and yep. it's still groovy. So, but IDM tends to be a little bit more complex. Uh. It's like, it's like a, like, if mathematics had music, that would be it.
0: I think they call it like, Math Rock. Have you heard oh, of ma- Math Rock? Yeah, I heard of yeah. Math Rock. Yeah, a bit like that. Yeah? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, do you? I think I think the interesting thing is that. So labels aren't or, or categories aren't as important, and you say it, it, it kind of stifles creativity to a certain degree.
1: Sometimes, as a creator, like speaking personally. Okay, yeah.
0: so where where does the the line with regards to authenticity line uh lay with regards to these particular genres? Because mm. I'm sure the the. A certain genre of music evolves over time with regards to people using certain uh, templates or certain mm. foundations to the mm. music. Mm. But I think as of late, because of the the tools that's available, people are pushing the boundaries and pushing and pushing mm. to the point where it's unrecognizable as, as what you say with, with regards to the IDM. Yeah. So what's your take with regards to authenticity and how uh how it would be really if if it's unrecognizable, can you still classify as EDM or do you come up with a new term for it or does authenticity not really matter as we move mm, forward?
1: I think it's, it doesn't matter. Like, to me, okay, like if you're a producer, right, you have two paths to go. One is um to appeal to the audience. If you want to appeal to the audience, then you're quite strict with your genre because when you want people to search uh, for um, music using like the genre, like let's say I'm looking for this genre. That, that's the good thing about categorization, right? Is that it makes it easily searchable. Yep. Right? So, like, let's say I want, um, I don't know, dub techno, which is like a certain genre of techno, then immediately, like, uh, people know what they're looking for and, like, they can search your song. But if you're an artist, right? And, and, and like you're really making it for yourself and, and hopefully the people that pick it up are those that know you and stuff like that, then the genre is not as important as, like, promoting your, Brand name, la, I guess.
0: So it's yeah. quite integral and it's quite closely linked together. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Because so, I, I've i known of like producers that at first we know them very well for techno, then they completely deviate. So I mm, can't say that this artist is a techno producer anymore. Yeah, yeah. Right. So at this time I just follow the artist law.
0: Interesting. Mm. Is it a. When there are such deviations that completely different from what the artist used to produce, mm. is it a shock? Hmm. Because I've heard of bands when they try to mm. produce something different. They are known for this particular sound for X amount of years. When they try to produce something different, they get a certain amount of backlash because the fans want something familiar. Mm. They want, unfortunately, they want the artist to produce what they used to produce. But artists yeah. being artists, they want to explore.
1: Yeah, it's really up to the artist, oh. Like, how much do your fans matter to you? And do your fans respect you as a person rather than like the music that you produce like yeah. you know fans have many different reasons why they support somebody right it's either the sound or because of who they are the kind of philosophies that they that they give so it's like it's very different uh. yeah usually um, usually it doesn't really come as a shock it's more like oh interesting you know and I will try to stick with the artist a bit longer yep. to see where they are going yep. and then I'll just noted long noted yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, put a pin on it yeah put a pin on it <laughs> so you, you you mentioned about uh being exposed to i guess very naturally music and gaming so mm-hmm. i think my question is that were there any particularly fond memories of i guess when you were gaming that a piece of music really hit you and up to this day you kind of still remember maybe not the visuals as much but the music and the sound how, how, how it made you feel was was there is, is there a particular memory or experience that, that could So
1: like this question is mostly like what game what's my favorite game sound lah, basically.
0: You can interpret it as that, yeah.
1: Yeah, let me think. I okay, so um for me, I think as I um I also grow older and spend more time in the industry, right? The things that really appeal to me are no longer like um music per se like of course game music right is is always very powerful and always very emotive but i'm looking for more creativity of um how do you blur the lines between music and sound design to me, that kind of thing
0: before we go into that how how would you define music in this case wow (laughs) okay has has it changed along the way and it sounds like it has um, for games, yes.
1: For games, yes. So, um, I think there's one important note that I must say regarding game audio that's very different from composing, uh, for linear audio, yep. right? For film and stuff is the interactivity of it. Interactivity. Yeah, the interactivity of it. Because, like, let's say you watch a film, right? Uh, your film is like two hours, right? In that two hours, right? The, the creators know exactly how they want you to feel. You know, Fair like. Fair enough. Yeah. They, they put uh, the cut, whether it's the cinematography or the music, right? It's, meant to push you into a particular emotional direction Mm. but for games you can't control how the player plays the games you can't control how long the player is going to stand in one location for 10 minutes Mm. or are they going to like just like speed run through the whole thing you know (laughs) so that's why when you do sound or music for games it's quite important to like um, compose and make the sound for many different circumstances Mm. right Um, so a very simple example is like let's say you're doing a boss fight and maybe at 50% of the boss's health, the music changes. Mm-mm. 25%, the music changes. Just before the boss dies, it changes. And then when it dies, then it changes. So these are all the scenarios that you got to uh, pay attention to. La. How long it takes for the player to get the boss health to 50%, you cannot predict, right? Yep. So your music has to be composed in such a way that um, it's clever la, and is aesthetically pleasing in a sense. So um, if you ask me now, like... um what kind of game music I like is to me it's like game music that's implemented cleverly. <laughs> I don't
0: know. Well, what does cleverly mean in this particular Like scenario?
1: elegant. Uh, like elegant. Like it's not so literal like oh you know because literal is like oh like let's say you you go from um point A to point B the yeah. music just crossfit.
0: Okay. Fair yeah, enough.
1: Very straightforward crossfit. Right. And and it's great. Like, you know, um, let's say, like, what's game music at right? Like uh, Guild Wars 2, for example. I love Guild Wars 2 music by itself. Um, even Genshin Impact, I will listen to the music by its own mm. in like Winamp or whatever. Um, but in terms of implementation, I think like you really have to pay attention to it. La. Um that means you you have to judge the game music based on how it behaves in the game. You can't just judge it from like OST.
0: Oh, okay, okay, okay. I understand. Okay. Yeah. So yes, Okay, would you agree with this statement? Like, if if game audio is done well, it's mostly unnoticed. But if it's done poorly, it's fucking glaring.
1: <laughs> yeah, I to some extent I sort of agree with that. Um, especially to laymen, to the untrained ear, mm. right? Uh, you have done a good job when nobody notices. But I think that's the baseline. If you want to go further, you need to to make sounds that other sound designers will notice, like as a good sound. Okay. Yeah, that's that's my my baseline of. How I want to push myself. Because it's it's quite easy to fade into the background. You know, if you've you've been doing this for a number of years, you know how to. I mean, basically as long as your sounds don't suck, la, then, <laughs> then like it's you can just fade in the background, you know. Yeah. But um I think to me, what's fun is putting in Easter eggs of sounds that only the trainier can listen to. You know, like how some games, I don't know, like Doom. Okay right? Doom, the most recent Doom, you know, like some people have done really crazy stuff, like they've like, um, put the song, uh-huh. the soundtrack through a spectral analyzer and it writes words, like the spectral analyzer, the frequency spectrum has like words in them or like, let's say there's a sound being played, then somebody go and take out the sound and then reverse it and there's some like satanic mm-hmm. message playing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of Easter eggs or like, you know, if you're able to like, um, make a sound sound so good that even other sound designers sit up and notice right then that to me is the goal
0: interesting yeah while you were speaking I reminded of uh, I think it's, is it Persona Trees battle music mm. I think the criticism for that is as good as the song is every time because of the frequency of battle it gets a bit grating after a while yes. because it's yes. the, always the same intro and yes. you have to it's like a it's like a dungeon crawler of sorts and you encounter a lot of battles and i think after like the 50th time or the 100th time it gets a bit grating mm. so how do you balance that uh that that line between uh playability mm. with regards to the game as well as good uh design yeah good audio design
1: yeah so that's why as a game composer or a game sound designer it's very important to be first and foremost a gamer Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You need to be a gamer and you need to test your game a lot because like um y- like you need to know from the player point of view, right, how many times this sound is gonna occur. So this is an a prime example of like the song is great, mm. but because it wasn't tested, or it wasn't <laughs> like uh implemented with gameplay in mind, right? Then there are some uh loopholes uh, that you have failed to to plug. So like I think for example, there are some games out there, um, that have really good sound design um by itself like oh my god the the sound is so mind blowing so crispy so crunchy and everything the the guns are very well designed but like um when you play it for like 2 hours it starts to get extremely fatiguing yeah so this is the kind of experience that only as a gamer you would notice yeah
0: and this is the sort of thing that uh would either be feedback during uh testing, testing and session. fixed yeah, is, is it fixable? Something like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of it's, course, it's fixable. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it involves the the technicalities of how you want to to I don't know do do audio magic with it.
1: Yeah, I mean I can explain to you in quite uh technical terms ah. So like like okay let's take the example of a uh, year fatigue right. Yeah. Um, you have an amazing sound and it happens. So there's a few ways to go about it. Uh, one thing is have variations. So variations means that like um like. Like one gunshot has like six variations, mean that, that, that gun sound, it sounds the same, but there's something a little bit different about it. Like whether it's the bullets or like, I don't know, like, um, it doesn't sound so repetitive uh, yeah. and so like fake in that sense. Uh. there's one pass. The second pass is the mix. Cause you know like for audio posts there's always the mix right mm-hmm. like how do you balance between like dialogue and music yep, yep. And, and the same thing goes with sound except that there's a bit more um interactivity that goes behind it so for example maybe you want your first gunshot to be louder and then your second gunshot maybe reduce the volume by 70% the next gunshot reduce the volume by 50% oh,
0: so it doesn't keep
1: stacking up you know and then it slowly yeah we did that um for No Straight Roads like the game that we uh, recently worked on mm. um uh, you know like how sometimes you play action games as like a combo counter? Yep. Like you just keep... Yeah, so that combo counter has sound, right? Yep. But you want the first combo to sound satisfying. So it needs yeah. to be at its loudest. Yep. But if it keeps happening subsequently, the player's going to get <laughs> very annoyed, right? So <laughs> yeah. so yeah, we 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 had this um, algorithm that attenuates the volume. Mm. Like maybe um, it attenuates by like yalla, 75%, 50% and then it caps at maybe 40%. So it'll just keep playing but it's just at softer volume to the point where when the player um has keeps doing the combo right they hardly notice it anymore but it's still there
0: because you wouldn't want to take attention away from the, the player playing but you still want it to be there yeah interesting
1: so these are little tips and tricks uh, for, for mixing uh.
0: but is this something that uh, only through expertise and only through I guess doing, doing being in this particular niche industry for a while that you're able to suggest changes like that Because you need Mm. the experience, yes, as a gamer, but also Mm. in the profession to be able to tell, hey, this will work, this won't work. Maybe Mm. let's do this, maybe let's do that. Because there are very, very specific changes that unless you have the years for it and unless you've been uh, doing this for a while, you won't be able to tell.
1: Yeah, I think also it's um, it's important to know because when you're at the bug fixing stage, right, Mm. which is probably very close to pushing out the game, right, you you want to be able to make decisions that won't take up too much effort mm. or won't take too much time to fix. So, like, it it takes experience to know how to immediately fix that thing or yes. make decisions <laughs> on whether, like, can this be fixed? If it can be fixed, how long does it take? Is it worth it?
0: Mm. Yeah, that kind of thing. I so would a lot assume.
1: Of statements. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I would assume at a particular point in time, there might be other bigger problems to fix. So, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and also because, like, um, like, because of the code structure, right, you must yeah. be aware that if you fix this thing, right, how does it affect everything else? Oh, it does? Yeah. <sighs> Sometimes, you know, like, uh, especially like, let's say, uh, graphical fixers. Let's yeah. say they, oh, um, I intend to move uh, this object from point A to point B. Fair then they don't think about sound. <laughs> and then, and then when, when us sound people go back to test, I was like, eh, how come that thing not making sound anymore It used to be there? And then like, oh, then, then you kind of have to remix things a bit here and yeah. there. So that's why like, um, the team communication needs to be quite tight la. Yeah. So
0: with regards to you going on that two-month I guess scrimmage to I guess Boston mm-hmm. and coming mm-hmm. back, was it an immediate start with regards to the company or did, did something else happen? <coughs> did you work in uh another company mm-hmm. and you started MBA? Or what was the what was the journey like?
1: So after I came back from that, I joined the company which um, ran that incubation program. So, the mm-hmm. Singapore office... Uh, so, so you know, there were prototypes that came out from the two months. So, our job as a Singapore office, Singapore being Singapore, our job was to monetize it.
0: <laughs> you say <see> that with <laughs> a little bit of disgust and a little <laughs> bit of like... Uh, <laughs> I uh, have a <laughs>
1: love-hate relationship with it. Because, okay. like... Um, it was a really good program. Like, the program churned out really great people. But I think... Um, Again, it's a very Singaporean thing to tie the revenue as KPIs gotcha. to the success of a program. Mm. So that's why they needed a way to justify the usefulness of this program, I guess. I mean, this is just my personal take. La. Yeah. So, um, but I think on hindsight, I'm like thinking, oh my God, it is, you're, you're making games based on research goals. It's not easy to monetize that, you know, because when you want to monetize something, most likely it has to be entertainment-based, not research goal-based. Yep. Right? So- yeah, that's that's on hindsight, but like, yeah. So I was working in there as a full time composer slash sound designer for about two years. Yeah, and uh, I was mostly composing music. Actually, my love for sound design hasn't even started there. I did sound design, but I haven't really developed a keen ear for it, yeah. nor a superb interest in it compared to music. So I think after two years, um, I felt I was plateauing, in the sense of like um really improving my craft la. And at the, I was really young. I was like. When I was working there, so let me think, uh, it was really straight out of poly law. Then I started working there. It was like 19, 20, 21-ish. So obviously my maturity wasn't there to think about how to like push myself to improve my craft, right? Then I plateaued law. Then, um, at that point in time, I decided to further my studies or, yeah, at Vancouver Film School. Interesting. Yeah. To learn sound design.
0: Specific film school sound. Okay. Yeah. Were there a correlation with regards to, Was it to learn the the, the technicalities that you might not have known before? Or why? Yeah.
1: Yes, mostly technicalities. So, a little bit about background is that my education, right? I came from Republic Polytechnic. Wonderful. Yeah. And Republic Polytechnic, um, what attracted me was the problem based learning, PBL. So Welcome, okay. yeah, so you don't go for lectures every day. You are just presented with a problem, and you are given two hours to solve it and <laughs> present it in front of class. It's great, right? Okay. It, it, it keeps you on your toes. Case in you know? point, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it keeps you on your toes. It helps you to problem solve very quickly. You know, yeah. it, it grooms your charisma and stuff like that. But it didn't teach me any technical skills. Like, <laughs> you know, most of the time, three years there, I like oh they know what I was doing just creatively problem solving. So. <laughs> Yeah, then I felt like okay. Then actually, I I um I managed to score a place in NTU ADM Art Design Media for a Uh, I I went there. Then um I was still working in Gambit at that time part time. Then I realised that my I was just itching to get technical skills, mm. and at part of the time university really wasn't it. University was more of like um. You learn very high level concepts, you learn mm. um, like art history, yep, you know, yep. all this kind of thing, which which um, um, is great and all. But at the point of time, I was hungry to um, pursue my career mm. by means of technical skills. Yep. So, um, I searched worldwide. There were only two schools that offered specifically sound design, which was SCAD, SCAD. Savannah College of Art Design in Atlanta, yeah. which had a degree in sound design and Vancouver Film School, yeah. which had a diploma in sound design. So, um, I think my parents were kind of upset because they were like, why are you going for a second diploma?
0: You know? Uh,
1: because most of the time they would be like, oh my god, you know, you're polygrade, you get do uni, when you're good reading, like, you know, get a <laughs> degree and stuff like yeah. that. But I'm like, yeah, I think a degree is not what I'm looking for right now. So, I went to get my second diploma lo, at VFS. Yeah. And it was a one-year intensive diploma. One I, year? Yeah.
0: When you say intense, <laughs> intensive, how intensive was that?
1: Like, you just don't have holidays. Lo. You know, like most people, when they go overseas to study, they're like, oh my God, summer yeah. break. And then they're like, <laughs> either work during summer break it's or like, they go on holiday. Like winter,
0: snowing, cannot go to school. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. but But that one was like, just like you know, you come back on Saturdays, Sundays, and just like freaking bust your ass uh, over that one year with no break, yeah, yeah. So it was great. And and um, I also became a bit more independent because like I studied overseas, so I met yeah. quite a few people, and um, also because that school is a specialist school, so like a lot of the people that went there, they weren't necessarily my age, like you have people coming in in their 30s, in their 40s oh, to learn sound design, okay, okay, yeah. So, um, it was a really good exposure. It's
0: like good worldly exposure.
1: Yeah, and also like how I viewed sound design was different also. What changed? Um, so, initially, like my thoughts, I just wasn't trained in sound design. Yep. In fact, I never got any formal training mm. Not for music, not for- So
0: you, you, from from that fruity looks example you said, everything is just, I guess, Google and learning on the yeah, fly. Yeah, learn
1: on the fly, learn by yourself, you know, just YouTube and stuff like that. So yeah, and I think for sound design, it's like you learn so much more over there, like, like the way um sound design, the layering goes yep. and how do you even do dialogue editing? How do you actually have fun doing dialogue fun- editing? <laughs> 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 you know, a lot of people say like, like uh, yeah, dialogue editing, but to me, dialogue editing is as fun as washing the dishes. Sounds like a
0: controversial <laughs> statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, sometimes like, you just do on a thing, then you just like wash the dishes and reflect about life.
0: So, so it's like, a bit mindless in a sense, but yeah. there is you can still have a little bit of joy in doing it. Yeah, yeah, it, like.
1: some satisfaction la. You know, the same kind of joy when you scrub off like the you, your your dishes are so shiny yeah. and spotless. So it's <laughs> the dialogue editing is like that. So. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, but I'm curious to know. Um, on hindsight, did the because there is a bit of romanticization and there's a bit of, I guess, creative spark as to figuring things out yourself and finding, mm. I guess, uh, your own creative voice that way. Mm. So do you think the, having the technicalities or, or learning the technicalities, did it hinder the creativity or did it like push it to a different direction?
1: I think it just pushed it. Okay. Because creativity only applies if you have a basic set of skills and a, deep, a basic set of skills at that time. How?
0: <laughs> you use? it's you sound really competent, but when you say you don't have basic skills, that doesn't really match. <laughs> um, or were you were you really just figuring it out on the job on the fly? Yeah,
1: I was really figuring it out on the job on the fly. You know, it's like how um sometimes when uh in, in video production houses, right, sometimes you get video editors doing sound design and they they like just take maybe a sample off the library, and they put it, then they like layer it with like very basic stuff and then that's it la. Mm. Yeah. I mean that that was what I, I thought sound design was, you know. And and then when I went to this school, I was like, oh my god, there's like so many other aspects of sound design. Like, like you can take from sample library, you can record from source, yep. which I already knew, you can use synthesizers, you know, so record fully. So like um yeah, it I think like it really broadened the whole um tool set. So it's like it's like painting, you see, like if you only have Black colour, you know. Yeah, you can do great stuff, yep. but it's only goes so far. Yes. As, as opposed to like, yeah, exposed to different kinds of brushes, different yeah. kinds of colours and stuff. Then if you do decide to go back to black, then you will have a lot more experience and you know exactly why you've been painting black. Only after you've been exposed to all these
0: colours. Mm, yeah. Interesting. So what would the beginning days of Imbar look? What did it look like?
1: Mmm, also don't know what I'm doing. Uh. Even up today, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think a lot of startup founders will be like, that. they'll like, mm. they'll be like, um I think especially I had no experience and it was mostly like um it was born from let me think uh, so it was born from my depression.
0: Okay. <laughs> in, in in what sense?
1: Okay, so um. After I graduated, I still wasn't super sure. I mean, as if most graduates go, you have the postgraduate anxiety of getting a job, you know. And upon a time, I actually interned in a post house in Hong Kong.
0: What's a post house?
1: Like a post, uh, post sound. You know, without post audio, like audio poster. Gotcha. Like we did, yeah, sounds for films and stuff. Yeah, in Hong Kong, and like, I was there for six months, and it was quite a depressing period. I learned quite a bit. But I guess I wasn't in the right frame of mind because I was still um, very anxiety-ridden and stuff like that. In
0: Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, okay.
1: yeah. And because like, my, my dialect sucks. <laughs> and I, yeah, communication was a barrier. I didn't really have any friends there. Yep. Uh, you know, it was a six-day work week. There was yep. like, day shift, night shift, day shift, oh, night yikes. shift. So it was like, pretty young la. And then like, yeah. the environment was just extremely gritty like Like, people were like, smoking, like, chain smoking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like you know there's like the huge mixing board and then there's like ash oh like,
0: god the, like, that's a gritty in. picture yeah okay yeah it was
1: very yeah and um, I think at that time um, it was very isolating and I was also depressed because like um, there weren't a lot of girls there mm. like I was I think like the off it was very uh, obvious la like the, the girls were in office the, the guys were in the studio so I was the only other girl in the studio okay and um, found it very hard to relate to people like, generally so, um, in my depression, I contacted uh my friend who was that time. So, after I left my job in Singapore, remember the one where I was the composer, sound designer, I actually interviewed this girl, Sharon, right? Uh, who's my co-founder now. <laughs> <laughs> and she took over my job. So, yeah. So, we, we remained friends. Huh? Then, when I was in Hong Kong, I was like, whining to her, I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm so depressed, you know. Like, I want to, I feel like I can, I'm, I can do more and stuff and then it's still being stuck here. So she was like, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then we were like, yeah, why don't we start something together? So it started from that spark. Like, from like, let's start something together. Let's change things. And she roped in Jeremy, who's now my other co-founder. Jeremy also went through the same program, the Gambit. Yeah, the Gambit program. Correct. So three of us are Gambit alumni. And um, the main thing we wanted to do was game audio education because to us, um, in order to get the demand from game studios in Singapore, mm. we first needed to educate them about the importance of game audio because we are really talking about infancy here, like the level of knowledge. So to educate and to also um, like respect the craft in such a way that we don't undercut each other because you know in creative field, there's a lot of undercutting and stuff.
0: Unfortunately, yeah.
1: Yeah, and since three of us were already like pretty much the more well-known game sound people right we just didn't like the idea of like why are we forced to compete in this way Mm. so we decided to join forces to like kind of set the price and then that's how the company started very shaky none of us had startup background Um, it was like I think a very risky decision for all of us like for me I had to put all my eggs in one basket like I didn't have alternative income source and I think when we first started, like we were like earning five hundred a month or something mm. each of us. Yeah. So you
0: mentioned about education. So mm. it's only recently that I realized that there were Singapore-based game companies. Mm. I've always thought that it was just like an Ubisoft, like oh, like mm-hmm. an EA. Mm-hmm. But mm. it's only until recently that I realized that there were actually a couple of uh, rather prominent. Uh, Game companies in Singapore. Mm. So, what was the the landscape like back then when you first started? When you had to edu- had to educate, were they where were they getting their sounds from?
1: <laughs> um, I think a lot of people were getting from royalty free sites. Okay. Either royalty free sites or the sound effects, maybe they get they buy off sample libraries and stuff. Or some of them might even try making on their own. Um, some of them were already working with other composers that weren't uh game trained like interesting yeah yeah, yeah. They were so like, more music yeah, or, or yeah all music true, yeah. and stuff like that and um, the the working relationship last time was pretty much like I do the sound for you I pass to you job done you know mm. I pass to the programmer okay I don't care about it anymore yep, yep. Or like the most I play the game you know <laughs> there, there isn't really much of that like testing and yep. like iterating and uh, looking checking the behavior yep. the, the implementation of sounds the knowledge of that really only came quite recently la. yeah
0: but it's a push towards, I guess, a better product, even yes, though more product. care and content have to be put onto it.
1: Yeah, and it, it benefits everybody. It makes the game sound good. And it also, um, it, it really gives the composer and the sound designer justice. Because what happens is that if you're a composer, you did this really kick-ass track, mm. right? And you pass it on a programmer. The programmer is not well-equipped to implement it correctly because their ears are not trained. Yep, yep. So it's, it's like, let's say uh you create this loopable track, but somehow when it's in the game, it doesn't loop properly. It's like, I don't know, a... a millisecond of silence in between then the whole experience is destroyed yep, yep. then the composer's like thinking i are so wasted you know I made such a nice track but then in the game it's like how come got this pause here and mm. it doesn't seamlessly blend with each other yeah. yeah so it's actually a win-win situation if we all paid more attention to audio implementation
0: has the landscape changed like let's say mm. in 2021 when you're looking at do out does it take a lot more does it take the same amount of convincing that you had to do back then, with regards to, uh, let's say, working with other people, as to how uh, mm. how audio design can be implemented at a higher level?
1: I think people now are generally more open. Yeah. What? What?
0: What, what was the change?
1: The change is okay. So first and foremost, right? I it sounds ambitious, but if we are the ones educating, then our track record needs to be damn good, lah. Yep. Right. If not, people won't listen to us. They'll be like, huh? And uh, it's, I would say my, that's why I say community is really in my heart because it's all based on friendship and trust. In order to get that initial foot into the door, you need to be working with somebody that you trust and vice versa. Mm. So the very first um, client that we really had complex audio implementation was uh, Witching Hour Studios. They did Masquerada. Mascarana Songs and Shadows is in 2000, oh my god, 2016. <laughs> I don't know, it seems so long ago.
0: I thought of Witching Witching Studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: Witching Hour. So um that time it was a huge risk. They brought us in and uh we basically proposed this entire solution to them. And the programmer was at first extremely skeptical. It wasn't us versus the founders. Uh. The founders and us were friends already. We were like, oh okay, yeah, sure. And then they brought in the programmer, the programmer was like <sighs> Yeah, you know, I can do this because what we are proposing was using uh, um, audio middleware. So, audio middleware is a program that bridges the gap between um, the game engine and our sounds. Uh. It's it, it able to handle a lot more complicated sound behavior without programming from scratch.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, so what this programmer is saying is that I can program from scratch, one. why do I need to use your solution? And then, so we had to write proposals, huh? proposals and do examples as to how it helps you save time and how it makes economical sense. Yep. And, um, yeah, that, that, that programmer was a bit hard to talk to, but the moment he used it, he went all the way with it <laughs> and he helped us out tremendously. Mm. So like, like it's about that first hurdle. Uh, yeah. He went above and beyond uh, to basically like bridge the gap between that tool and like everything else. So very, very thankful for that. Yeah. So, it's the trust. I think other clients... I think... I would say to be honest, right? Some clients are like being very Singaporean. They will only be... What does that mean? They will only look at the monetary value of it. Mm. Yeah. And for us, our services, we usually price ourselves a bit higher because we offer this service. Yep. As opposed to royalty-free music, obviously, right? We'll price ourselves higher, right? But like, some of them still can't see that. You know, they'll be like, yeah, why should we? You know, why should we this? Why should we that? And then... Um, the, like we can try to explain the value but if the value they approach us with is wrong to begin with then there's nothing we can do to yep. convince them like if they don't appreciate creativity and quality then nothing we can do lah so in the meantime um, we've started to teach at schools like mm. in polis like Jeremy, my co-founder he's teaching regularly at Singapore Poly. so at least if we cannot change the minds of the, the existing ones we change the mind of those that are going out in the industry lah
0: is he aging rapidly due to the teaching?
1: <laughs> <laughs> actually. Actually, we like teaching. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Okay. Even
1: though it's a class of maybe 30 people, uh, and only one person is really interested, uh, Just that one person is enough to like make us happy.
0: Our our
1: expectations are very low. One. <laughs>
0: yeah. So with regards to value, and I guess um the old the old problem with regards to creativity is how do you ascribe value to something that, mm. to something artistic and creative that someone might not see value in? So how have you chosen, at least in right now, after all these years of experience and being in the industry and starting your own startup, mm. how, uh, how do you describe this intangible value to a client? How do you convince or is, is convincing even part of, I guess, the, 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 the vocabulary that you employ to, to tell the client of this value?
1: Mm. It's it's part and parcel of pitching. Okay. Yeah, our services. So um when when we pitch, right? Uh obviously the this is a tough question because like I think a layman wouldn't Especially Singaporeans, it's very hard for them to appreciate creativity if they don't see any like credentials behind it. So for us, minimally, we have the awards. Can right?
0: show a double diploma? Huh? You can show you a are double are my, diploma.
1: My double, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. So like, you know, the awards, even though the awards don't mean money, but to some people, the awards mean a lot. And when they see that we've won awards, then okay lah, mm. you know, there's that kind of thing, um... Especially when nowadays globally the awards for games include sound as a component. Mm. Like best in music, yep. best in sound, this yep. kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's good recognition for them a Just, yeah. But in terms of like the value, value, um, apart from awards uh, and like, let's say, like revenue and stuff like that. Um, I think it's really their exposure, their own exposure to games. are. Uh,
0: which is a crapshoot. Sometimes they might not have exposure at all. Yeah,
1: like um, we've run into clients that say that, oh, why should we pay so much for sound? Every time I play mobile game, I don't listen to the sound at all. What? Mm.
0: I don't oh, turn on no. the sound. <laughs> yeah, never like,
1: oh, nothing you say. <laughs> like that. And,
0: yeah. As, okay, as infuriating as that reply is, mm. um, do you see things changing? Do, do you are, are you optimistic in that sense because let's say if uh you're all you're you're, you're in this industry and you foresee and, and this is like a, a a huge passion of yours and I guess your your co-founders and you guys mm. want to push the needle with regards to sgGn or do you see this particular mindset changing mm.
1: Mm. I think it will um it depends actually on the access to platforms and tools. So, for example, the reason why a lot of people maybe they don't play with sound on phones is because it's not convenient, right? Sometimes it's like oh, you got to take out your earphone you mm-hmm. and plug in and stuff like that, yep. or like even to invest in a headset, it takes money, you know, and stuff like that. I, I think to me, the moment all these barriers are down, right, it's like becomes a very natural thing. So, like for example, a VR, right? Let's take the the topic of VR, right? Um. Because VR headsets are not that accessible yet. Like, each headset mm. is like, what, $600? Yep. So, like that's why it hasn't reached mainstream yet. But yet, the, the opportunities are boundless uh, for VR. And and I'm just waiting for the day where it becomes accessible, you know, to the everyday common person. This is why mobile gaming is so hot in, like, Southeast Asia and, mm. like, Asia in general because it's easily accessible. Everybody has a handphone, right? You don't have to specially go and buy a PlayStation and get it. So, I think it's a big deal about accessibility. Uh. So, that's the reason why... um. For us, uh, when we make sounds for console and PC, right, we pay extra attention because we know that consumers that own uh, consoles or PC minimally have a good set of speakers. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Or
1: headset. So I think when we make sounds for games, you must think about the end user. What is the setup they're most likely going to use? So for example, like um, when we make sounds for um, mobile games, for example, like hyper casual games, we know that if they play with sound, it's most likely coming from the headphone speakers,
0: the, the, the phone speakers?
1: Yeah, the phone speakers, no. right? Because hyper-casual players, they won't like specially like take out their, no yeah. candy crush, they won't specially take out their <laughs> headphones and yeah, I <laughs> really want to, you know, appreciate yeah. the, the dynamic of this sound here. <laughs> they just want it as feedback to feel sure only So like... Um,
0: Even the Fruit Ninja, I remember. Yeah, the the slicing, I think. I don't play it. I've played it once or twice, but I guess the sound is... The, satisfying. The satisfying, yes.
1: mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So when we when we mix the sound right for mobile, we kind of make sure that it can stick out in the mix for, uh, uh from a headphone speakers lah. Yeah. So it's like um, it's more compressed lah, generally the sounds so that they can hear everything. Yep. You know, you 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 listen to that sound on speakers on good quality speakers, <laughs> it's like it's gonna suck. Lah. Everything's <laughs> gonna be brick wall in your face. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to if we do sound for like uh, console games, right? And then we know that at least minimally they have a sound bar and then they have a subwoofer a so we can push our base a bit more. You know that kind of thing. Uh. Mm, yeah.
0: Interesting. So, do you think VR, I guess AR, AR slash VR, mm. do you think these two uh, technologies that is here and it's, would hopefully be a lot more accessible within the next, I guess, couple of years, do you think that's the next frontier as to how uh, mobile gaming kind of exposed like a wider audience to uh a subset, or even like a set of games, that it has really penetrated the market, like mobile gaming. No one, I think, there were a lot of companies like slamming in the beginning. Mm. So, so do you, from from your point of view, as I guess chairperson, co-founder of like an audio oh studio, does <laughs> so many things. Yeah,
1: can I just speak for myself
0: <laughs> and as yourself? Okay, okay, okay. Because I think <laughs> it's important to distinguish uh those roles you have yeah. and as a consumer. Like, yeah, true, true. Does true. the technology excite you? Because I know. Uh, there's the Beat Saber thing. Yeah. And I think recently uh there's Half-Life 3. Mm. Hey, is it? No,
1: the uh, Half-Life AL- Alex, Alex. Alex, yeah. 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 Uh,
0: that, that, that was a big thing. So
1: please don't say Half-Life 3. People's heart yeah, will stop. Yeah. <laughs> they will be I, like, oh my god. <laughs> are you saying it's out? I
0: keep yeah, thinking <laughs> it was Half-Life 3. So does the technology excite you? Yeah.
1: Um yes, actually. So um okay, currently the landscape, right, for VR is that obviously, as mentioned, there there are many games for VR for entertainment, but not everybody can uh afford headset. So actually, the biggest usage of VR in Singapore, right, is serious games like simulations, like um, serious, yeah, like uh, like like learning surgery, like them serious a Steam shit. game. No, it's not. It's not a game. They call it serious game, but <laughs> it really means like a simulation training thing that has gamified elements to it. Okay, that, like yeah, make people feel like they are progressive yep. yeah. Yeah, so it's like things like learning how to uh make do surgery or like um army applications. case there are like military applications military, as well, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing like It's doing quite well in Singapore for VR. There's yeah, we, we have quite a few companies that do that here. Um, actually, AR has been more accessible because AR it just requires a handphone. You know, you point a handphone at something and all these things or like there's an attachment to a handphone, so that one is more accessible. Um, but VR, I think that it's a very different experience. So first and foremost, VR, right? It seems to me as more of a solitary experience. Okay. Like you imagine yourself playing game with your phone and then you sit beside your friend, you play game together very shook, right? Even console. But then VR is like, uh, it's just a very like <laughs> solo experience, you know? So...
0: I saw like a VR esports on YouTube. It's the strangest thing ever. They're on the stage like doing anything, thing, but... There's a screen of yeah. them in game, but then on the stage with the set and just moving about. It's quite interesting.
1: <laughs> Yala. Yeah, I mean Yeah. It's just buzzwords on top of buzzwords, you know. Sorry, I'm just this is not chairperson. This is like me. It's just like like, oh, you know, every time you see the buzzword of like um blockchain. Yeah. Blockchain esports in VR. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my <The> god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this
0: buzzword thingy. But it these buzzwords. I guess it's, it's 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 a good marketing ploy but it does get mm. tiresome after a while. If I guess that the next 10 clients are asking you to do these things but they don't really understand it.
1: Yeah, yeah, like um I think it it attracts only investors that don't know any better. Gotcha. Yeah. But I think to consumers we have yet to see a uh, application like a successful application of these things lah. Yeah. So um yeah, I think back to VR right? Like, I do feel that it depends on what kind of game you want to play. Obviously, multiplayer... Um, I think I haven't seen really, really good multiplayer VR yet. Mm. Also because your friends they you play with most likely not everybody can they afford. They need the, the, the yeah, set, unless yeah. Unless your friends are all them rich and privileged, everybody <laughs> owns like multiple headsets and stuff. But yeah. like, the, the chances of that happening is not very good. So, I, but I think like, let's say uh, narrative games, you know, games that require you full attention, like you're going through um, uh, your own journey, you know. Um, then I think there's, there's a lot of potential for that. And especially like, um, let's say dating games. Like, okay. So, like, when, when, when PSVR came to GameStop, I tried it, right? And then okay. there was this like whole like dating simulation thing. It's like, uh, I guess I'm supposed to be like some dude, okay, right? The yeah. headset. And then it's like, oh, I get to sit down next to this girl and yeah, then she yeah. talks to me and she seems so real. Yeah. So that kind of thing, la. And oh, yeah, VR porn. How could okay. I forget that? Okay. That's obviously a huge industry. So things that try to like bring, uh, virtual beings to life up. Huh? I think that's a huge uh, potential right there. Yeah.
0: So, with regards to AR games, I think the only one that comes to mind is Pokemon Go. Mm. When it first came out, what were your thoughts on it? Do you think that it was going to succeed? Did you have any conception or not? Do you think it was going to flop? Because it's it's just... uh, It seemed incredibly tacky. Like, mm. the, the, the gamification aspect of it. What were your thoughts of it? I guess when it first came out.
1: Mm.
0: Are you playing it?
1: I, I played it. Okay. I played it just to check out the hype when it first came out. Yep. Um. I think first and foremost, I would say like, Pokemon Go isn't truly an AR experience because like the, the AR element of it is optional. It's the, I don't know, it's like putting, like you're mapping the... Mm. The Pokemon on a field yep. that you see in front of you, but like it's optional, you can turn it off, right? So it's more more, more of like location-based thing, right? And it's, it was actually uh inspired by um older game called Ingress that came before Pokemon Go. So that technology is a new. Okay. Like the whole the whole Pokemon Go thing about, oh, you know, um fighting. Exploration. Yeah, exploration, yeah. having two camps, fighting each other's bases, you know. Actually, Ingress was the very first one. So I played that as well. Um, I would say as a consumer, I don't know, eh. I didn't really get into it. I played it for the first time. Um, and then I, I still remember it was National Day where there was free data. So I made <laughs> use all the free data and like play. I walk around Pongo la. And, um, it's great as a talking point. I mean, among everybody else that's playing your uncle, auntie, all that, because like it's a way to bring gaming to the uncles and aunties. Then you all enough. have common topic, hang yeah. out as a family yeah. and stuff like that. But at the same time, I feel like it's like, it takes away the joy of walking and looking around you because now you're constantly just glued on your phone. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, I, pros and cons are the pros is that if your friends playing it, it's a great community experience, right? Or take over base and everybody go there. Yep. I think the, the bad experience is that like now when you go out, you're just always looking at your screen and you don't really look around you anymore. La. Yeah,
0: I think it baffles me how I've seen uh, I guess uncles and aunties playing it on the bus mm. and I will obviously there's a question that goes in my mind like do you kind of understand what you're playing because it is based on a franchise and stuff like that And I've also mm. seen I guess uncles having like six different like phones oh yeah phones. boy uh, are, yeah. Uh, are they making money out of this they, I don't like, think so I like, really don't know what like, they're doing there was
1: even one where they what I don't know they, they hacked their car battery to charge their phones <laughs> to play Pokemon Go it's like insane
0: Do you think so? I think this brings up a very interesting uh, train of thought. Like, Mm -hmm. do you think people realize, like, all these things are actually games, and there is a there is a there is a line of gamification that have been implemented into different elements of I guess society today that people might not even notice or might Mm -hmm. not even realize that they are actually games. But do you think people realize that, like, these small they don't realize they don't
1: realize like so many. Okay, so many aunties and uncles, right? They play so many games, actually. But don't know why they don't want to call themselves a gamer or like, you know, Mm. they don't consider. They think that gamers are uh, other people, those that play hardcore games. But you play Candy Crush, you're a gamer. why? You play Clash or Clans, you play Pokemon Go, you're still a gamer. why? A gamer simply means like you play games. One who play games. One who play games. It's not like a glamorous term like, oh, I read book. I'm a book reader. (laughs) 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 <laughs> of thing. it's like let's play games so why must you so it's like to me the, the duality of like you actually play games but you don't consider them games then yet you judge game addiction mm. it's like a bit weird like, that kind of thing so like yeah I don't know do
0: you, do you think the, the term gamer is a bit loaded that's why they, they don't want to, to touch it with a 10 foot pole they, they just don't want to label themselves because it means something
1: um I think it's the fault of everybody actually the gamer community themselves the gamer community themselves is pretty toxic man Mm. like like I don't know it's all these people that they adopt this gaming thing as their sole personality that when people poke at it they get so freaked out and then Mm. they protect it at all costs like like, this kind of elitism I'm sure elitism exists everywhere you know like you know if you read I don't know if you read um, Archie comics then you're not (laughs) reading a book (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay yeah. Yeah. or
1: like if, if you watch Hollywood films blockbuster then yeah. you're, you're not really a film connoisseur you, you
0: can, can only be. watch French indie films from <laughs> the 1950s <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah Yeah. or like the same thing for games like, I mean yeah. oh if you don't play Call of Duty you know you don't call yourself casual gamers are not real gamers yeah. you know, it's kind of elitism like, it's rubbish yeah. Like, yeah,
0: you do you know. think do you think this idea would slowly uh, dilute itself across because as more people mm. I guess uh, as more people play games uh, generally it would just dilute the way this particular culture that's always been because it used mm. to be a very niche thing. I guess mm. same goes with all the niche sub- subcultures, I guess emo music, tattoos, yeah. everything. There used to be a very guarded community and fine because mm. the information is very like uh, closed off. But as technology progresses, as the equipment, everything gets a bit more, I guess the word is democratic, more people can afford it, more mm. people are playing it chances are I think it will dilute itself across a long enough time. But I guess mm. perhaps the, the core and the toxicity is still there. I think that that is a problem that I think people have been trying to address and solve for the longest time. Yeah,
1: it's just a bunch of like dudes, uh, sorry. I mean like, like okay, so um, I think three years ago, I was at this conference and this talk by Brie Code who, who was the lead programmer of Child of Light, you know, she she her talk was really inspiring. Her talk was about making games for people that don't play games. Mm. And I think a huge part of it is because um, the amount of um the h- amount of marketing money that's being put into a certain genre of games gives it a very bad rap because that's all we see. You mm. know, so for example, um, um like GTA, right? So um the first time I saw games being openly advertised in Singapore, MRT Station was GTA 5 and I was okay. actually very surprised to see on the billboard because to me like huh GTA 5 is like super violent it's like, the
0: antithesis of what Singapore is, is.
1: yeah can like that yeah right so I was like surprised and I was like thinking okay a lot of these games that are being pushed out there. I mean they over glorify like violence yep. and like gunfights and stuff yep. in fact I, I recently um was moderated a moderator gender equality panel in games and we we're talking about the 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 over masculinization of games uh, mm-hmm. how it's like promotes a lot of masculine uh, toxic masculinity in that sense uh. so the the problem is these games are mainstream you know like like there's so much press going around it there's so much marketing dollars but and, and that's why People and parents think that that's what all games are about. But actually, there are so many other games that have such wonderful narratives and have the potential to teach you about life that, that don't get enough marketing money. And it's really strange to me because, like, like the, the stereotype that most gamers are guys, it still persists. Actually, it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, in Asia itself or China, even it's like, it's 50-50 already. Yeah. Or even more, actually, women gamers. And it's just that, like, on the socials, Friend, we don't see playing casual games as real gaming. Lah. So they don't consider women as like <laughs> mm-hmm. real gamers in that sense. Lah. So like to me, it's about the exposure of the public to different kinds of games. Lah. Yeah, that, that, that's how I see it diluting. I think the more people acknowledge that there are more different kinds of games than these usual ones, then I feel like then there's more chance for it to be diluted.
0: What about the platforms that uh, consumers consume and play their games on? Because mm-hmm. I think Steam... In recent years, has been lauded as I guess the, uh, it is, it is the platform where a lot of indie games go and they flourish. I guess mm. things that come to mind is Hollow Knight, mm. uh, mm. Super Meat Boy, The Binding mm. of Isaac. All these games that have a, a very niche and uh alternate way of uh reinventing the idea of play and titles not necessarily like a major developer would pick up. They have been flourishing on Steam and have got an audience a very diverse audience I think mm. one that comes to mind immediately is Undertale as well mm. I think Undertale uh, is it's a very interesting type of game because conventionally it, it looks like a game straight out of, I think 1970s 1980s but I guess the based on based on the amount of fan traction it got even up to this day I think close mm. to a decade after it's been released um, mm. the amount of fan art and I guess uh, fan fiction that's come out of this particular title it shows the impact that the game has it's not just about a male or female. I think it appeals to such a wide range of people.
1: Hmm. I think also a lot of these indie games start to um talk about societal problems that that are um often discussed about these days. So like games like Yeah, Undertale, Night in the Woods, Celeste, all of these explore mental health. Yep which is a super popular topic now and, and and our generation relates to it a lot more than the older generation, right? So th- that's why it's like, even though the graphics looks very like retro in that sense, right? But it still manages to capture that audience. And, and it shows that like we care. We actually don't really care about the fancy graphics mm. and like the technological advancements. We care about plot. We care about storyline. We care about how it relates to the current generation. Now. Yeah. So
0: going back to a uh, uh, previous uh topic that we talked about Mm. games as art forms Mm. what is your stance on that because i think uh the there's been a lot of, i guess online chatter online discussion about whether it is uh whether it should be regarded as an art form Mm. some people say yes they cite up examples let's say bioshock it's a very good narrative experience they bring up journey they bring up gris Mm. all these are very um complete and wholesome experience you go in you get exposed to i guess the the strength of a game is like, it's very immersive. Mm. But I guess the counter side is that it is not like a Picasso. It's not like a a very lauded like uh, craft as opposed to let's say like painting and stuff. What what is your stance on this gaming and art form?
1: Mm, I think gaming can learn a lot from other parallel mediums like film and stuff. I mean, you ask yourself, is film and art form? Yeah, it can be. And of course, there's still your um, cookie cutter Hollywood films Also, so. You know, there's something for everybody. I think it, it is what it is. There are some games that are just out there to make money and to appeal to a mainstream audience that's perfectly fine. And there are games that are, just exist in art forms also and that's perfectly fine as well. And I think it's important that both um, exist, coexist, right? Because I, I feel like um, the, the games that focus on making money will help to benefit the economy as a whole. Right, and also help to promote the game games as a career lah, for people that care about money and stuff. Lah. But on the other hand, the ones that really push, push the frontier of innovation are the art games. Lah. So I feel like they need to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's what I feel because like, like I've always thought about this because like, I'm coming from a trade association perspective. So naturally, I would focus more on the money-making ones and those that um, are able to sustain as a business. Lah. But I'm also keeping a close eye on the art game side of things because like, like if you keep following what the crowd wants, right, without pushing any of your personal philosophies and what's meaningful to you, right, it's very easy to stagnate. Like your games will always be the same. Like your
0: FIFAs and your Assassin's Creed and your Call of Duties. I mean, okay, (laughs) to be
1: fair, Assassin's Creed, so so like, I think, I guess a lot of these companies are trying to balance between Mm. appealing to a mainstream audience and adding their own artistry in it. So Mm. for example, Assassin's Creed, right, yes, it's a franchise that has been ongoing, you know, the same formula, but at the same time, they teach history. They do. Right. And I, I like kids learn history through Assassin's Creed more so than like you <laughs> type games, right? So I, I think people are just finding small ways uh, to put artistry, like really balance it out more.
0: What have you played recently that I guess uh really stuck with you? I guess narratively, visually, or any of the mm. metrics? Yeah.
1: Haha. <laughs> so like Okay lah. Admittedly, I've been playing nothing but Genshin Impact for the past few days. I
0: thought you were gonna say a dating sim, but fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's close. <laughs> okay. It's what, close. what is Genshin Impact?
1: Genshin Impact is an open world RPG.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's, it's like I don't,
1: if if you if you played Zelda Breath of the Wild, then like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's okay. similar. I said that like you can swap between like four different characters, and they have like different elements, um, interacting with each other la, to form like interesting um reactions and stuff up. Uh, but okay. yeah, and um I think I want to talk about Genshin Impact because like a disclaimer, I was never into the anime style of games. Okay. Right? And it's extremely anime.
0: Okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah it's it's like I,
1: I was and and like I've never really played free to play games either. Like yes I have but not like gacha genre. What's a gacha? Gacha is like um a way to monetize. So basically, if a game is free, right? Gacha, basically, you spend on the in-game currency where you can use to spend on like uh loot boxes oh, okay. that okay. generate you rewards based on chance. Uh. And
0: it's different from DLCs, right? Mm. Okay, it's different with downloadable, okay. Yeah. Okay, so...
1: It's uh, by chance. DLC, you know exactly what you're going to get. Yep. Yeah, which is why I the, the newspaper every time say gacha is like gambling. La.
0: Do you agree with that statement?
1: Um, hmm... Gacha is like gambling is like saying that a lot of things that involve luck and chance is gambling.
0: I think setting up a business involves luck and exactly. chance as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it gambling is the, I- <laughs> the framework, depending on how you want to look at it. It could be considered a gamble, but I guess yeah. the word gambling in, in this sense, if it's not framed properly, can get out of hand quite faster.
1: Okay, so the, uh, uh, just a disclaimer. I mean, SGGA has been in talks with like very concerned governmental organizations, <laughs> right? Um, I think how it's defined is like as long as you cannot um exchange the in-game currency for real cash then it's not considered a gambling game. Mm. Yeah. So that means you just spend on the game and the only thing that your money is being spent on is like in-game items.
0: Or in-game currency.
1: Yeah. In-game currency, in-game items and stuff but it can never be cashed out. Mm. Like you can never be like used to like make money lah. Yep. like you know, at least officially. At least- <laughs> yeah. Whether you choose to resell your account to somebody with money, I don't care, la, but yep. that's not the official means of it. La, so yeah.
0: Do you think that's a bit of a gray line? Because for games are expensive to make. Mm. I, I I'm sure we can all agree that games are expensive to make. They are very mm. lengthy. And I guess it is not uh it is not unreasonable to think that a studio will want to recoup the losses and make profit from the game. Mm. So I think it's very interesting because at least in my lifetime, I'm sure in yours, games have gone from selling CDs, like single copy CDs, and battle chests, to I guess the, the the singular title with an expansion pass, next to digital DLC, to loot boxes. And I guess mm-hmm. now it's like a, it's always like a pre-order thing. So now it's like in the, in the loot boxes thing. And I guess... Oh, the, the, now it's,
1: it's even like streaming. They do it in Netflix style, which is like Apple Arcade. You pay like um, money a month, like X amount of money a month, and you get free access to all these games. So
0: I think that, that, that begs the question of, I guess, ownership in a sense of the game. Mm. Because, same, you, you mentioned vinyls just now. I guess mm. now, or oh, vinyls, CDs, all these things, you own the CD. You don't own the rights to the music, but you own the physical, tangible uh, commodity. You can play as much as you want. But let's say, now on Spotify you stream mm. it but let's say it what goes out of business mm. <laughs> that goes away <laughs> same with YouTube same with I guess Netflix as well mm. so do, do you do you see us do you see the gaming industry you know, perhaps in Singapore regionally I guess as a whole do you see it progressing towards the the, the cloud gaming thing and not I guess looking back with regards to uh, tangible goods
1: Yeah, I don't really have a very strong opinion on this, but I will say for myself, I I would like things to be on cloud generally and connected to all the major platforms. Like I know some people have privacy issues. For example, um, that's why they would rather get like DRM-free stuff, you know, they would, yeah, rather than like... And I completely respect that. But I think because I'm Singaporean and I grew up with invasion of privacy anyway... <laughs> I know it sounds very dark but like you know sometimes you see how people in US they're like oh my god privacy I'm gonna boycott Facebook and everything get off the grid and stuff like that and then I'm like why do I not feel the impact of it because I'm Singaporean I know that everybody is spying on me anyway
0: because when you're born they give you an identification number (laughs) that is the end for US citizens
1: I know they're spying on my WhatsApp so just like you know yeah, it's horrible I should care about these things but you know
0: yeah I spoke to I guess uh, Dreamcore the the PC makers on a previous episode Mm. and I asked him, like, what does the future look like, I guess, within the next five years? I think he echoed the, the same sentiments because I guess he, he mentioned that NVIDIA is, is, is promoting this cloud gaming thing. Mm. And he said that in the future, people won't want, like, big PC towers anymore. They will mm. just stream it straight, same as Netflix. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's about convenience. La. Mm. I think even for PS games, right, I get most of my games on PSN. The only reason why I will get the box set is because I want to share with my friends. You know, share and pass them and stuff. La. But that's the only reason, no.
0: Okay. Before yeah. we move on to the last couple of questions, um I need to know how much did you spend on Genshin?
1: How much do I spend on Genshin? Oh, yeah. actually very little.
0: Very little comparative wait, to wait. your friends, or very little <laughs> comparatively to, to a free whales. game. Whales. <laughs> okay, so this is a free game and you can complete yeah, to it. Play. Because I think the controversy is always like with such games you need to mm. pay to win. There's a pay-to-win thing, you need to pay yeah. to progress. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um okay, so actually, right? Um the way I, because I'm in the industry, I know that companies need to earn. Yes. So I, I wouldn't like completely milk the free to play thing if I really enjoy the game. And I would measure it against movie tickets. So if you spend, uh, for a two, two hour movie, you spend like 12 to 15 bucks, right? Why wouldn't I spend that amount for a game? And looking at the amount of time that I spend on Genshin, right? I should be a bit more liberal on it. No, but I, okay. So every month, um, I spend on Battle Pass. So okay. the Battle Pass is like, you know, every day, like you, you, it's like a checklist of things you do la, and then the more things you do on the checklist the more you unlock goodies la. So I think I spent about let me see battle pass is about $20? $20. $20. Sing. Yeah, 20 dollars a month or 22 around there. But um when a particular character came out, Zhongli, I spent What's
0: 150.
1: $150 because I really wanted to roll for him.
0: Is it a so like a special he's character? A hot, okay. <laughs>
1: he's my geo daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Geo like rock. Yeah, he's like um yeah, he's he's yeah. Okay. He's a rock. He's <laughs> okay. a god of um rock. Okay. Yeah, and he's like very stable. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's very I don't know, he's very cute. La. Cool. Yeah, he's yeah. just like the whole idol culture thing. So disclaimer also, so that's why I say Genshin is very special to me, because no anime games, never played free to play before, never gone to husband those before. now I'm really into husband those. Oh,
0: no. okay. Yeah,
1: I've gone down that path. La, yeah. So Yeah, that's all I care about in Genshin right now is like collecting like a husband dose.
0: But that's interesting because okay, so so, is is that a sentence that you have never thought you'll be saying, like in 2021, like five years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Never thought about it. And now, okay, so like Genshin has metas, right? It's like, oh, which character you pick to like really maximize your productivity in the game and make you the most powerful. Yeah, I don't care for that. I only care about husbandos. I want to have all the husbandos on my team. And Fair like, enough. Yeah.
0: You do you. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, what, what I find most interesting is how I guess the pricing structure with regards to games have changed mm. quite a bit. Like, mm. At face value, if you were to pay $150 for a game, you might probably not pay for it. But I guess with small little uh, bits and pieces like this to influence mm. the psychology and to make you want to spend, I think that's where a bit of the danger comes because you are mature enough to understand, oh, this is what mm. I want. Mm. But perhaps like a 16-year-old might not be able to understand that.
1: Why would a 16-year-old have access to a credit card? Oh. Why would their parents allow them to like, buy things on the phone.
0: We are sitting in uh secondhand vintage shops where t-shirts can go up to three hundred dollars and there have been kids <laughs> coming in to spend on these t-shirts. So
1: <laughs> well I, they do them if they can afford mm. it. Yeah, you know, I mean to me it's, it's an issue about parenting lah. That's mm. it. Like to teach them. But I, I feel that because like uh games like Genshin, right, it's considered a ops game. It's not Life? like Ops. Live updates. Okay. Yeah, meaning that like every month we expect an update. So like the longevity of the game is not just, oh, I'm done with the game and then I release it and I'm done. Like they still have to create content for it for the next five years. Games used years.
0: to be like that, right? Right. It's, it's a one and done thing. Correct. Now I think I think the, the terminology I, I see online is like live service.
1: Yeah, live services or live ops. So um, this is very common for free-to-play games. Mm. Yeah, that's how they earn the money. Ma. So people... um. They spend money based on the new content that's uploaded. So every Christmas, there'll be a Christmas event and stuff like that. So some people w- will always have something to look forward to and then they will spend. Yeah. So that's, that's how things have changed. I know last time is you just like, um, pay once and then that's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But now because of, you know, Mihoyo, how much money they raked in, right? Do, do, like, do I want to know? <laughs> that is like so, it's like they, they broke even in like, um, three days or something like that, like three million Of launching the- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so like, it's insane. Uh. And like, and if you see the amount of people they have hired, I think like they have like 700 and that's excluding the outsource, you know, so like, imagine the mouse you have to feed. You need yeah. that amount of money, right?
0: Yes, yes. Right, yes.
1: and and I think when it comes to free-to-play games, right, the bulk of the income actually comes from the whales.
0: Whales are people who spend a lot a of lot, money. A lot, a lot, a lot. So, Comparatively, you spend very little compared to Correct. them.
1: Okay. Correct. <laughs> they have to, they have to, Um. they, they need these whales right, to help sustain them, you know, so that the free-to-play folks can stay free-to-play. And honestly, I like this model. Like, say what you want about free-to-play. Like, I know a lot of people are like, uh, free-to-play, you know, it's not, blah, blah, I want premium and stuff like that. But, it, it keeps the games accessible. Like, people that have, uh, for example, no credit card or like, you know, they cannot afford, at least they have a chance to, play the game Mm. you know and and to me um, the future of games it has to be accessible like you can't games can't just be like something that only rich kids can play right so yeah people from Indonesia and all that is like especially those living in uh, villages even play Genshin Impact how amazing is that? Oh, wow. Yeah. There, I think there was one time I went to um this island um for a holiday in Indonesia, right? And, and it was like, it wasn't very well developed. And um I thought I would have nothing in common to talk to with my driver that time. No way. You know? <laughs> he but then to- he played, he was playing like, like, I don't know, he was playing like MLBB or something, Mobile Legends and stuff like that. Like, and and it's completely free to play. He got his Xiaomi phone secondhand from like, I don't know where. So we just talk about games. So we use Google Translate, you know, Bahasa Indonesia, English, mm-hmm. and Google Translate. And we just talk about it. So I think like games is such a great way to like connect with people in that sense. Uh. So we're
0: recording this in 2021. You spent hundred fifty dollars so far. Until yeah, the yeah. next hus- hus- husband comes yes, out. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um we don't have a lot of time today, but I want to touch on these two topics. So you talked about how there is a trend towards, I guess, uh live services. From a developer's point of view, do you think that will influence uh because we, we talked about how indie games might not have that much. Or it's it it, it, it is deemed riskier as compared to let's say uh, a game from an established franchise, let's say Assassin's mm. Creed, mm. uh I guess FIFA, Call of mm. Duty. Or you adopt the, the life service model. And I think even that has notable flops. I think Anthem comes to mind. They have all these <laughs> big plans and everything. Mm-hmm. I think most recently is s- cyberpunk. Um, do you think they will influence the type of games that is being released in the market? There was a recent trend, I guess, like say five years back about the, the, the whole mobile thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blizzard released it, wanting it to be an esports. It mm-hmm. kind of flopped in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So there are these trends and because, they are more quote unquote profitable, they are more uh more p- palatable as opposed to let's say undertale. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that will influence the type of games being produced by all these studios with money? Because all these studios ultimately they have the money and they have the the network really. We talked about the ecosystem. They have the ecosystem to support mm. the, the the releasing of such things.
1: Mm. Mm. So this is where uh the trade association head comes in, lah. So, obviously, the ones that are already making money, no problem to them. The ones that are unconcerned concerned with are the indie studios, right, that really want to get their game out there. And I feel like that's where the lines between monetizable and art is a bit blurred. Lah. So, and, and I always think that can follow from other countries. Like, you, you look at Nordic countries or even look at Melbourne. Why do they have such a flourishing uh, indie game scene? It's because the government acknowledges it as an art form and they're willing to fund for it. Because right, if, if we cannot convince VCs and, and for obvious reasons because VCs are always looking for monetary growth yep. so obviously they wouldn't fund an art piece right? yeah. but government if they believe in art and they believe in the value of culture Promoting your culture through games, right? That's where the funding can come from. And I think in Singapore the the arts funding is a little bit um weird at the moment. <laughs> weird is a cool way to put it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean getting them to recognize it, lah that's where I think it should be though. So um I feel like uh people humanity is very strong in a sense, strong will in the sense that artists will always want to create. They wouldn't cut, they wouldn't sell themselves short, right? And like not want to make art anymore, mm. you know, because, oh, like, doing something can earn me more money and stuff. Right? There will always be this sector of people. So our question is, how can we best support um, the people that make games as art, la? Right, so even without government funding and stuff like that, how can we explore how to support them law? Mm. yeah, so my my I mean my strategy now is to really involve more artists from other sectors outside of games to explore games as an art form because I feel like their perspectives are very, very valuable. I feel like because of the way the education system is in Singapore for games, right, games people only really hang out games people, and like <laughs> therefore, like. You know, they're all like, you know, in their own silos. So,
0: it's like a bubble. Alert.
1: Correct. And, and it affects the creativity of the output. Like, sometimes the games that they make are extremely gamey. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how to say? Very game. <laughs> <law>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it doesn't have the artistry which I hope for. That's why, I, like, um, we organised the Heritage Game Jam. Like, um, I think it was last August, one week before National Day where Singaporeans can come together and make a game about their identity mm-hmm. la, in one week. And that one was really special to me because... We invited people that were um studying sociology or uh, psychology, you know, people that were writers and poets. And and that's my dream. La. My dream is to really like um get people to see games as simply a medium and not intimidating or to explore their mm. to to express themselves. Uh. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Okay. My last big question is: I believe your studio worked on the game Devotion. Mm. What is your experience? Uh from, I guess from start to finish because that bridges into my next uh, topic which is censorship with regards to games. Mm, I think mm, that mm. game particularly is, uh, I think, based on Taiwanese culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole controversy with it is that because I think uh, someone found like a particular element inside the game uh, mm-hmm. that I guess, was was it crit- criticizing China or was it?
1: Was, yeah, please. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's basically like we need a pool. Like mm. just like make fun of Xi Jinping and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah.
0: And it was pulled from, I guess, all the the, the platforms. Like yeah. it was pulled from Steam, I think effective yeah. immediately it was yeah. like a uh, review bomb and all. And I think yeah. only recently that they have managed to get it up, I think, on the on Steam. You can you can actually no, buy the they, game. They,
1: yes, yes. They yeah. self-publish it. So at first they were gonna put it on GOG, but even after a while, GOG
0: pulled out. What is a GOG? A uh,
1: GOG is a it's a it's a it's also like Steam like, it's like a platform where you can download games up. Uh. Yeah. yeah.
0: So So when um, all the platforms don't want to host this. Really good game. Yeah. Uh, I've seen people play it, and yeah. it is a truly harrowing narrative experience. But because of the controversy and I guess the market, because mm-hmm. if because China is a huge market, and let's say if there is uh if, if, if China pulls the plug, then your game won't make as much much money mm. commercially. And going back to the same thing, yeah.
1: Mm, okay, I I will speak as much as I can yes, because speaks. obviously a lot of things are private yes. and like even us as a outsource that work on mm. the game we don't really want to ask the devs too much because right, they are they were facing a lot of uh um issues that time yeah yeah so um the experience working on the game was great i personally feel it's a masterpiece like it's the epitome of an art game mm. like it, it teaches people about culture and it also has a um, story about it that uh reflects on real life uh, mm. like real life issues about um people's People, blind belief in yep. faith and stuff like that so and there's a lot of uh, poetry in it yes. a lot of poetic elements symbology yeah. and stuff like that and yeah, it's so, of the
0: Chinese culture
1: yeah it's yeah, very yeah, rare yeah, in right. games yeah, yeah. yeah Taoism I mean I mean even when we did uh, research for it right I, I found myself um attending like um Tangki uh, this What's Taoist that? processions in <laughs> Singapore which I never thought I would so I, I, I it was just really eye-opening for me it taught me about my own culture Yeah. so um the experience was overall great um we were really... Like, even the launch was so artistic. So, the countdown counter, right, to it was, like, just this fish tank that had blood dripping (sighs) in it. It was just so amazing. And then, like, pre-launch, there was this, like, AR game just to launch it. It was just amazing. And then it was just... It came as a big surprise. uh. So, I think the official... Officially, it was an honest mistake. Okay. Right? They... They didn't mean to leave it in there for people to find. It's not Easter egg or yeah. whatever. It's an honest mistake. Because in, uh, when we do games, right, like we often have placeholder yeah. art, right? And I guess somewhere along the line that placeholder art didn't get replaced. Uh. Mm. And it's just like, it just ended up, there, loss was unfortunate law. But, um, I'm glad they have it back up and I'm glad that the company is still doing okay. I mean, they are the franchise for detention which is yeah, their the previous, previous game. game yeah. It's doing very well. It's on Netflix, you know, it has a movie and stuff oh,
0: like that. Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: Detention has a movie and I think it's on Netflix well.
0: Scary as fuck, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jump scares yeah, and everything? Yeah, energy? it's pretty
1: good. You should watch it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think, um, I, think that, 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 mm. I think the conversation around that paints uh, 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 a bigger picture with regards to censorship and big tech and stuff like that. Like mm. how if it... Because ultimately objectively speaking, it's a game asset. Mm. But because of the real world implications of it, it got pulled and everything. And I guess you, I think from the studio's point of view, your hard work is just pulled. You can't make revenue and stuff like that. And then from the alternate point of view, it's like, this is really not a big issue, but you're making such a big issue of it. That's why it attracts so much attention right now to this and it. Yeah, I think it's I mean, especially
1: in the Western market, right? You know, and then when they see like, oh my God, China is yeah. like being ridiculous. <laughs> it adds to the n- narrative yeah, it of it. Yeah, adds to the whole thing. and They're like, oh my God, and then but but I do think right, it is really like like state being state, like CCP being <laughs> CCP. Because if you ask um and and like the mob the crazy mob, if you ask game developers from China what they think about devotion, they will say it's an amazing thing. Like like I I spoken to some Chinese developers that um. Are launching their games outside of China, maybe because like now it's very hard to make games in China. So they go overseas. And, and I asked myself, right? Okay. Like I'm facing these Chinese developers. Um, and devotion is one of our proudest work. I would have to take the risk to tell them that I've worked on it. <laughs> what would they think?
0: Yeah. You
1: know? So I've taken the risk. Mm. And actually, most of the time they were like, yeah, it's great. You know, they, they think highly of it. So I think as creators, we all have this mutual respect of each other. Politics aside, you know it doesn't matter. It's, if you made a masterpiece, you made a masterpiece.
0: It speaks to the the transformative nature of regards to media, not just about games. Like mm. a, a particularly strong piece of media is recognized mm. by people in the space, people outside the space, and as much as you can try to pull it off the net and everything, it will find a way back out. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. In closing, um, I'm curious to know if you believe in aliens.
1: If I believe in aliens. Yeah. Um yes, I do believe that there's life beyond Earth. Uh.
0: Okay. As a bridge to that question, what type of games do you think they'll be playing?
1: <laughs> what kind of games they'll be playing? Uh? Yeah. I don't know, man. Our human minds are so puny to even conceive what medium like I don't even think it's digital or something beyond digital. Okay. Like our human minds are only confined to, oh, the most um technologically advanced thing now is VR but it's probably even beyond that, you know, it's maybe like, like, even beyond VR, like, maybe their individual synapses if they have synapses are connected (laughs) to like a network of like another dimension or something.
0: Yeah. Sounds like mushrooms. (laughs) 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 Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Sounds sounds like the mycelium network. Okay. Uh, In closing, where can people find you? Where can people find, I guess, the work that SGGA does? Can they... Uh do you do you accept like let's say write-ins from, from listeners who have this game idea? Do you have upcoming events? Please, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think uh you can visit us at sgga.org.sg. We have links to our social media there. Please join our Facebook group and Discord. So mm. our Discord is pretty active. You know, if you need any help with your games, feedback, you know, the community is very happy to help. Mm.
0: Yeah. What about uh finding you guys at Imba?
1: Yeah, Imbainteractive.com. You can like our page
0: as well. Wonderful. Okay, thank you for your time, Gwen. It's been a fantastic conversation. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. If you enjoyed what you heard thus far, do give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget to share and subscribe. Stay tuned for the next episode.